Hey, this is DeMar DeRozan, four-time NBA All-Star and member of the Chicago Bulls. And you're listening to Train, Body and Mind. Let's all be part of the progress. Oh, hello. Welcome to Trained, Body and Mind, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beyer. Each episode, I connect with the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, what we like to call the five facets of fitness. This episode will be a bit different because I'll be talking with two people. In the first half of the show, M. Sanjin, a conservation biologist, and in the second half, legendary marathoner Joan Benoit Samuelson. Both of them make a strong case for how the unpredictable nature of climate change is already having a dramatic impact on how we train and compete in sport. Athletes are change makers, and they've always been that way. And they tend to skew young. Women and kids are involved in a great way. You know, it cuts across social boundaries in an amazing way. So the way we can engage with people who are athletes, but people who interact with the outdoors and the natural world, I think is going to be a huge driver to whether we can actually get collective action on things like climate. That's M. Sanjin, the CEO of Conservation International, a nonprofit that advocates for climate innovations across science, policy, and finance. He's combined his training as a conservation biologist with his love for the outdoors to help people better understand the state of the earth and how we can take action to protect it. Everyone, literally everyone, is impacted in some way by climate change. For athletes, it messes with the outdoor activities that we love. Skiers and snowboarders are carving lines on artificial snow. Outdoor ice hockey players can't play because ponds have stopped freezing over. On the other side of the thermostat, summer Olympians are passing out from the extreme heat. And you might have noticed that the start time for your latest race isn't just annoyingly early, it's painfully early, like 4 or 5 a.m. in an effort to beat the heat. There are athletes out there who are sounding the alarm. Joan Benoit Samuelson, the first women's Olympic marathon gold medalist, now divides her time between running and conservation, and she's joining us on the second half of the episode. Fair warning, you're in for some hard truths. But it turns out there's plenty we can do when we get in the game. Typically on the show, we speak with athletes, with sport and fitness-focused guests, so it might seem that you, a conservation scientist, are a little let's say out of left field to use a sports idiom, but I think in my humble opinion, you make total sense for this show because our health is completely interconnected with our planets and we are all interested in watching sports, participating in sports, then this topic really matters. So I'm very glad that you are here to talk in depth about all of that. Thank you, Jacqueline. Pleasure to be here. All right. So speaking of sport, you're a bit of an athlete yourself. How do you get your movement on these days? Given the pandemic and what we've all been through and my travel and having a a two-and-a-half-year-old, the ability to do one sport in a consistent way is difficult. But many things in different small ways is actually quite easy. So yesterday I swam. On Sunday I went for a bike ride. Today is kind of a long day, but I will go out for a hike or a walk. All right, and you're living mostly in D.C. right now. You also have a place in Montana. I imagine in order to take up residence in Montana, they screen you for outdoor savviness there. Um. (laughs) Yes, yes, they do. I'm fanatical about fishing and fly fishing, and I do travel to do that in different places around the world. I cycle a lot because it's just easy on my body. I'm a pretty big hiker. It's been a while, but I have done some very long expeditions, like three weeks, 300 kilometers, that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Uh, Canoe. So pretty much most things I dabble in. You keep it interesting. I like it. Have you always been active? I think so. I think my parents would say that they would always have trouble finding me because I was always running <laughs> somewhere. So I was born in Sri Lanka, but when we were about five years old, we moved to Africa. And I really did grow up in the tropical jungle. Like we were out there, really out there, in a small country called Sierra Leone. And we were 200 miles from the capital city and, and we lived right in the middle of the forest. And exploring that forest was sort of my full-time job as a child. And that never really left me. So I've always loved the outdoors. I've loved exploring. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to now, have you noticed a difference in the way that you've been able to participate in or even enjoy the outdoors while doing some of those activities? Yeah. So that's not such a great story. 
you know, my week or two that I get to spend in the summer in Montana is kind of sacred. We have a lovely little cabin. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's amazing skiing, great mountain biking, great hiking, and probably one of the finest small streams to fly fish in the world. Last year, I cut short that trip by several days and came home early because it was so hot and so smoky. And I don't remember that in all the years I've been going out there. You know, the places that I loved and I spent so much of my teenage or college years in that we first started exploring in Oregon, on the coast of Oregon, in the Cascades, in Santa Cruz, California, and Montana. These places are fundamentally altered. I mean, these aren't faraway places. Multiple places that I have lived in no longer look like they did when I was a young person. And not only that, my ability to access them with some level of regularity or predictability is gone. Because the week I pick, pretty good chance that it's going to be smoked out or a fire or a heat wave where the rivers are too warm to fish and the air is too bad to breathe. I mean, how in God's green earth can we live on a planet when out in the West, in Montana or in Santa Cruz, California, the air quality is worse than it is in in Washington, D.C.? That just makes no sense to me. And yet that's where we are today. So if you're an athlete, if you care about the outdoors, we're in for this world of real unpredictability. I mean, we can access the outdoors in a kind of luxury sort of fashion, right? But think about the people who have to work outside, who have to make a living in farming or in agriculture or manual labor outside. You know, for them, it's not just nice to have. For them, it's life or death. Right. So that's the frightening part of it. Now, I'll tell you the thing that I see a little bit positive. One of the things I noticed in the last couple of years is that every trail that I'm on is incredibly crowded. So when the world shut down, the thing that people really yearned for is to be outdoors, to be in nature. And I don't think we're going to reverse that. So Sanjan, was it your own passion then and concern for the outdoors that compelled you to get into your field? So I'm a wildlife ecologist or a conservation biologist. I didn't fall into this because I felt that there was something that I needed to change. I didn't come up in that generation. I fell into this field because of love, genuine love that I think every kid has for the natural world. Like you look at your child, you know, they're outside and when they see something that moves or that looks strange or does something Mm -hmm. interesting, they're fascinated by it. I'm stunned that, you know, my two and a half year old identify so much with things like cicadas or snakes or birds, right? Anything that moves. My gosh, yes. I see that in my son too. Last night, in fact, he found this little spider crawling on our rug and he picked it up and luckily he was very gentle with it. He held it in his hand and we went and let it free outside because, you know, we didn't want to kill it, um, which was a really sweet moment. And then all he could talk about this morning, of course, was like how now he wants to hold this big, huge spider, which I want no part of. So I had that. And it always stayed with me. There was a sort of desire to protect these places that I'd grown up in and I'd got to know so well. So for me and most of the people I think who are most effective at what we do, I find are still motivated by this great sense of love coupled with this real obligation. Mm-hmm. And so now you're also the CEO for Conservation International. Can you tell me a little bit about what your organization does? Yeah, so we're about 37 years old, and we were founded on a very simple principle that people need nature to thrive. I think we were one of the first big conservation organizations that really put humans at the center of its mission. We work in the global south. We work in tough places like Cambodia and Brazil and Indonesia and Sierra Leone and Liberia and uh, South Africa, because those are the places that have the highest biological diversity, like diversity of life. They also have enormous need for conservation. They're places where people are still living very much close to nature. And so those bonds of human well-being and the well-being of nature are still strong and apparent. And they're places that are full of living carbon, what we would call irrecoverable carbon, in trees, in the soil, that if lost, we cannot get back in a human-relevant timescale. So these places, these giant forests of West Africa and of the Congo Basin and of Indonesia, I mean, these places really do have the key to saving all of us. So we should do everything we can to protect them. So that's basically what CI does. We work a lot through partners. 
We work directly in about 30 countries and indirectly in about 50. And Nike is one of your partners too. Yes. How do you work with our company? So I think we have three kinds of partners, I should say. One are local indigenous groups on the ground who are often on the front lines of conservation. We work with governments because, of course, governments are huge agents of change. Uh, The French government, for example, the U.S., Germany, but also Indonesia, Colombia, Costa Rica, etc. And then we work with a select group of companies. So with Nike, we have several things that we're working on. You know, one of the things that Nike has done is it's really an industry leader in terms of reducing, recycling, repurposing materials for apparel, for shoes, etc., It has a hard target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions through renewables, but also through efficiencies. You know, Nike has had this enormous success in convincing everyone that really everyone, anyone can be an athlete. I think you could genuinely say they're probably the leaders in sort of making that. I want to add something to that. I want Nike to help us get everyone to be not just an athlete, but also an environmentalist and an athlete. I love that. Well, let's do what we can. You know, you described a little bit earlier how you personally have seen some of the changes in the environment from when you were younger to now, especially in the places that you frequent. How has the fight against climate change, or let's say environmentalism in general, how has that changed over the last few decades? The good news is that pretty much everyone is now, at least to some extent, in the fight. This is not something that most companies, most governments, most individuals are sitting out. Even if parents don't want to do it, the kids are forcing them to do it. Every single company, it's no longer at the level of sort of the sustainability folks within the company. Now it's at the CEO. And those CEOs, I think, are deeply committed and they talk about it in deeply personal terms. So that's the good news. We have an army. Now here's the challenge. Here's the bad news. Two bits. First, it's much bigger problem than we ever, ever imagined. And every IPCC report tells you an even worse story than before. Well, and they do these every six or seven years, right? Like these are like very in-depth reports. They're very in-depth. They take several years to do. They bring hundreds of scientists together and they quite literally get 190 plus countries to sign off on the report before it's released. So it's an enormously powerful consensus document. And the predictions are increasingly dire, increasingly dire. The second problem we have is we don't have a lot of time. What we now know, what our science tells us, what our chief scientist, Johan Rockström, will tell you is that we have about 10 years to really act. It doesn't mean that the world completely turns upside down in 10 years, but it means that if we don't act in that time frame, we're set on a path that you cannot get out of. Let me make it simple. If the Amazon becomes a grassland, it's not going to change back into the Amazon rainforest anytime soon. The world is quite quickly approaching tipping points that if exceeded, you cannot pull it back. If the oceans acidify beyond a certain point, you can't have oysters or shellfish on any coastline. Okay, so... There's a lot to unpack here. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about maybe how we're seeing some of these effects, you know, in sport and in fitness and for those who have active lifestyles. On the most elite level, take the 2022 Winter Games. I think they were the first to rely entirely on artificial snow, right? But then if you also look at like, hey, my kid's in middle school soccer practice and half of his games were canceled because his fields were flooded out. So there's like both ends of the spectrums from like young athletes growing up to on the most professional level. How are we seeing climate change affect sport, whether we're participating in it or whether we're fans trying to watch it? That's a great question. So what I would say is that virtually everyone who goes outside or even frankly works out inside is being affected by climate change. Because predictability of doing something, right? So you know you have soccer practice on every Thursday, or you know that there's a game that you're working towards, or you know there's an elite level competition that you're heading towards. Every one of those things becomes a lot more unpredictable under climate change. That makes it difficult from everything from a parent's desire to plan to big, big things like the Olympics that we just saw, an entire sport, as you said, was completely uh, fueled really by fossil fuels because it's ultimately been fueled by artificial snow. That to me is staggering. 
that's the level that we're going to get to. And, and it's just going to get worse. It won't get much better. Well, and I think too, it might even be remiss to think that only the outdoor spaces are affected, right? Like indoor spaces are at risk too, because there's fires, there's floods, there's storms that can damage structures, right? I, just wait till you have power blackouts. I mean, try and work out indoors in a room that's supposed to be air conditioned or supposed to be heated when you don't have that. That's an absolute fact of life now for large, large parts of the world. And so the ability to exercise indoors is equally hampered by what's happening to climate. I know you focus on how the climate pertains to the health of humans. So can you talk a little bit about the inherent link between nature and well-being from a biological standpoint? Yeah, so if we ever needed a reminder of the importance of nature to human health, all you had to do in the last couple of years is just look outside your window. So COVID, like every other pandemic that's ever blights human populations, came from nature and came from our invasion and destruction of nature. You don't need just COVID. You can go back to SARS. You can go back to Ebola. You can go back to basically any kind of pandemic. There's a really strong correlation between the destruction of nature and the emergence of new zoonotic diseases. We've published papers on that. It's something that Congress is, has been debating and holding hearings on, for example. So that link is there. Nature and human health intertwined completely. Mm -hmm. And then our ability to exercise and use nature and recreate in nature is also being impacted massively now by our accessibility to it because of climate. Those are two big ones. And then the third one is air pollution. I remember the first time I came to Los Angeles as a kid and remember landing and not being able to see the city because of the amount of smog that used to be there in the 70s and the 80s, that's not there today. Mm -hmm. But what's even more frightening today is that the level of pollution that we're getting from forest fires, from agricultural burning. What's stunning to me is that I go to San Francisco last year, and we're using headlights in the middle of the day. You could smell it from the airplane as you're approaching California. That, to me, is staggering. And the fact that we've done all this in, on our watch is just shameful beyond belief. Yeah, I've experienced wildfire season living in the Portland area, of course. Some years are worse than others. And I remember vividly being stuck inside to the point where I'm constantly checking the air quality, just trying to find a window where I might be able to go outside and get a workout in. And, you know, I see, oh, hey, maybe it's moderate. Do I risk that? Do I go for a run for my mental health? And, you know, it sucks. It seems like we're going to have to face more and more of that as we go on. Air pollution in some big Asian cities is decreasing life expectancy by 10 years. That's a gigantic number. And so I think that there is a big reckoning here that we need to make. And getting off fossil fuels is a big part of it. Being able to take care and steward nature better is a big part of it. And if we don't do that, I think we're going to live in a poorer planet. Well, and speaking of that, I mean, these effects, they vary around the world, right? Can you explain how climate change disproportionately affects people geographically and socioeconomically? Yeah, so the saddest thing about climate change, if you could put it that way, is that the people who are often least responsible for the emissions have to deal with the worst. So the global south is heavily, heavily impacted. Tropic countries, Africa, for example, um, is massively impacted by climate change because of droughts that make a marginal situation much, much worse. If I don't have water from my tap, I can go out to the store and buy some water. But that is not something that is possible for many, many parts of the world. So that's part of the reason why we have to both adapt and mitigate as fast as possible to get us out of the air. So here's the thing. I'm confident that we'll get this right. I'm really worried we won't get it right fast enough. And in that gap will be a huge amount of misery that we didn't need to have. We're such a smart, ingenious, innovative, driven, kind, compassionate species. And we're just our own worst enemy. Yeah. It seems to me that one of the most direct ways that we can affect change is by thinking about what we eat, maybe. And a lot of our listeners are athletes. And I would guess that they put a lot of thought into what they put into their bodies. So agriculture is the biggest impact that we have collectively on the planet. Mm -hmm. So what we grow, how we grow it, how we transport it, how we cook it, and how we waste it or use it has the biggest impact on the planet by far. 
It's crazy to me that we still cut down primary tropical forests, something that has so much carbon, medicines, amazing biodiversity that can basically save us all. We still cut that down and burn it in order to grow grass for a few years in order to feed a cow that then gets shipped in some form to your fridge. I'll tell you what I do. I try to eat low on the food chain. I try really not to waste food. You know what's the biggest drinker of coffee? The biggest drinker of coffee is your drain. People make big (sighs) pots of coffee and then they have one cup and they toss it down. And I absolutely am conscious about some things that I just go out of my way to avoid, partly because I don't need to eat it and partly because I think ultimately we have plenty of other options and we can do great with that. Right. And well, I've heard you say too, like you don't think necessarily anybody needs to give up meat. It's just that we should be perhaps eating less of it. So I think if we can assume that some of our listeners might be keto or paleo, some might be vegan or vegetarian, are there any plant sources that are tougher on the planet than others? Yeah. So just because you don't eat meat doesn't mean that you don't have an impact on the planet because of the amount of fossil fuels that are used to subsidize agriculture. I mean, I can go into my fridge in the middle of winter and find strawberries in there or lettuce in there. That's insane. You know, that's coming from Mexico or from Arizona or someplace like that, right? So don't think that you're, you know, I'm vegetarian, so I don't have a responsibility. Absolutely not true at all. I think for me, it's about diversity of that diet rather than maximizing one or two things. Well, I love your realistic approach to all this. So how can we talk about climate change and encourage people to listen and take action versus just kind of shut down and be passive, maybe particularly as it relates to the sport-minded audience? We need collective action. And while individuals can obviously change the world and have changed the world, there is real power in that collective action. And that's frankly where we need the athletic community. Think about how fanatical people are about their teams. I mean, beyond any proportion, think about how fanatical runners are to their cause or surfers are to their cause. But, you know, athletes are change makers and they've always been that way. And they tend to skew young. Women and kids are involved in a great way. You know, it cuts across social boundaries in an amazing way. So the way we can engage with people who are athletes, but people who interact with the outdoors and the natural world, I think is going to be a huge driver to whether we can actually get collective action on things like climate. I want to talk about temperature for a second. The Paris Agreement set a goal of limiting global warming this century to a maximum of 2 degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, over pre-industrial levels. So what happens if we shoot past that? We're talking about cataclysmic changes in life that will literally affect where you decide to retire or where you decide to send your kid to school or where you go for vacation or even what sport you take up for the rest of your life. And then what about greenhouse gas emissions? We basically need to get to zero, which means not only reducing what we're putting up there, but actually sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The best sucking of greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere is done by plants. And so that's why we, Conservation International and others, put a lot of effort into both protecting intact forests, but also restoring them at scale. Okay, so if we have a lot of people listening who are individuals, maybe some own their businesses, maybe some can be greater change makers, but what can we as individuals do to actually make a difference in this battle? I'd say three things that actually make a difference. The first is think about what you eat. And as an athlete, as a business owner, What you eat, how you produce it, how much you waste makes an enormous difference to the thermostat of the planet. And it's also good economic sense. It'll save you money and it'll give you a longer life. So it's like a win, 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 win. There is no reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. The second is get engaged, get involved. And that means support brands that align with your values with the environment, contribute to conservation and environmental organizations to ours, but lots of others that are local, that are around, that you might feel uh, familiar with. Push the brands that you care about. Ask them what their plans are to go to net zero. The last one I was going to say is ask your politicians. I don't really care what side of the aisle you fall in, but you should be asking every single elected leader, what are your plans to protect nature? 
what are your plans for making our planet livable from a climate perspective? And they need to have a plan. Where can people go to get good information? How do we know what we're reading and hearing is accurate? And how can we educate ourselves a little bit better in this space? There are some great organizations out there that do really good science and whose work in the environment is really solid. So I'm going to name you a few. World Resource Institute, the Nature Conservancy, Environmental Defense Fund, Conservation International, particularly if you're focused on places outside the United States. And I'm a donor to many of them. And if I'm going to give money to another organization who's in the environmental space, in addition to my own, chances I've done my research. Are you seeing anything particularly innovative when it comes to positive change originating from the sport or fitness industry? <laughs> I'm, almost, I'm almost tempted not to say this because it sounds so strange. But last week, I had the chance to go to Paris Fashion Week. Mm -hmm. And that's such a strange sort of thing for me as a scientist <laughs> to be invited into this very sort of, you know, unique world. And what I noticed was how much focus there was on apparel and making sure that the supply chain and sustainability was really front and center of what is at the pinnacle of sort of what you wear, right? I think that the athletic industry in general, the apparel industry in general, are very much focused on this issue now. Because without scaling it, we're not going to get where, where we need to get to. You know, whenever I read up on climate change, my I, I feel my blood pressure like definitely rise and especially this week and last week in preparation for our talk today. Yeah. Um, I think it's also gotten worse since I've become a parent. And, you know, a lot of what we've talked about can feel hopeless. And even though you do bring this positivity to it and this optimism, there still has been a reported rise of what is being called climate anxiety. Do you ever experience climate anxiety yourself? Um, I get depressed sometimes. I get sad sometimes. And I get sad when I see a place that I know irreversibly changed or I leave a place knowing full well that it won't be the same in the next couple of years or so. You know, witnessing that change is hard. What I would say to you, however, nature gives you full permission to enjoy nature. You should embrace that swim. You should embrace that hike. You should Love the fact that, you know, you can look out there and there's still snow on Mount Hood, right? You should embrace these things and you should enjoy them and enjoy them to their fullest. And then come home and do something about it. Well, you have given me a lot to think about. And again, in, in just doing the research leading up to our chat, I made a few more small changes, not using trash bags in the kitchen, trash can anymore and washing that out in between turning all the lights off <laughs> pretty much. If I weren't having this call with you right now, I'd have this light off in the room. My husband's been reading, I think it's called Electrify. So we're on a kick to swap our gas stove for the electric and I think to finally install the solar panels. So big changes, small changes, but it's just, you know, ignoring it doesn't help. And I think you've given me some hope and that feels good. And I, I think our listeners probably will feel the same. So Sanjan, thank you. I so appreciate you joining us today. It's been a really important conversation. Thank you, Jacqueline. Great to be here. Bye-bye. Olympic marathon champion Joan Benoit Samuelson joins us after the break to talk about her work as an environmentalist, how extreme heat gets in the way of recovery, and what's in store for the future of running. Joan, believe it or not, this is not the first time we have met. I know. I was looking at you <laughs> and looking at, uh, yeah. I'm a little fuzzy on the year. I think it might have been as far back as 2011, but I went to the Nike Women's San Francisco Marathon. I was there with a group of editors. Gosh, it was one of like my first big races. And you were there and you spoke at Nike Town and then we did a shakeout run after and it was just so much fun. And, and look at us. Here we are, old friends reunited. Thank you. Well, I hope all of our listeners know your name because you are 
a legend in the sport of running. You won gold in the first ever women's Olympic marathon in 1984. You're in the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. You held the women's Chicago marathon record for 32 years. You've won Boston twice. You've set multiple, multiple age group records. There's so many other things that we don't have enough time to sit here and rattle off. But I just want to know, what is it that you love about running so much? I think what I love about running the most is the freedom that it affords me to just go out and do what I love to do and think and prioritize the things that take place in my life. The greatest thing about running, I think, for everyone is that it's affordable and accessible. You can do it anywhere at any time. How many years have you been running? Have you done that math? Boy, you're dating me now. I started running <laughs> in in high school. And so I graduated from high school in 1975. I was just going into my sophomore year in 72 when Title IX legislation became law. So I've been around the block a few times. Do you still race? I still race. I'm actually looking forward to a run in late April. I had a partial knee replacement a year ago. They said it would take me a year. I didn't believe them, but they were pretty much spot on. So I'm not running as much as I used to. I'm hoping mm -hmm. to complete the Abbott Six-Star World Majors. So that leaves Tokyo and London for me to run. I've run in Japan, uh, the Nike Women's Marathon over there, and I ran the London Marathon way back when. But I have not run the Tokyo Marathon or the London Marathon, so I need to add those two races to my slate of world majors. That's exciting. Yeah, you got to check those off. <laughs> I've made it up to 13 miles and counting since the knee replacement. Congratulations. That's exciting. I always need a challenge. Yeah. Would you credit your mindset as being something that you feel has helped carry you through the sport for so long? I think the mindset coupled with the passion for sport. Do you think that your desire for longevity in the sport has given you a connection to our planet and its longevity? As I've said many times before, I feel as though I'm a barometer for climate change. I've been running for many years, and even back in 84, a lot of people thought that I should move to a more polluted area to get used to the bad air quality, the ambient air quality in L.A., but I love to train where I live, and I think it's really important that for an athlete to have success, she needs to be totally comfortable in the environment in which she trains. So way back when, when I was asked to join Athletics West, based in Eugene, the Nike subsidized team, I was honored and flattered and really wanted to join the team, but I really didn't want to move to Eugene because it's this environment here in Maine that I thrive on. And so fortunately, the coaching staff allowed me to stay here in Maine. What is it about Maine that you feel so connected to? What do you love about the environment there? I love everything about the environment. And uh, I think the Oregon and the Maine environments are very similar. We have sister cities in our Portland and we have the mountains and we have the sea, and we're fortunate enough to live on the coast of Maine where I can watch the tides come and go, and I sort of schedule my day according to the tides. I like to run before a high tide so I can jump in the water when I finish and swim, and I just think it's a great existence. The sea level rises are concerning. The storm surges are concerning. The erosion is concerning. That's all happening, and it's all tangible evidence of climate change. Anything else that you've seen that has made you really aware of climate change over the years? Well, I'm an avid skier as well, and I do both alpine and Nordic skiing. And when I was younger, we just took it for granted that we'd be able to ski pretty much from Thanksgiving until Easter, and that's not so anymore. Without snowmaking, we wouldn't be able to ski. And, you know, it's great to have man-made snow, but the amount of resources it takes to make that snow is concerning to me. So, yeah, we're in a real hard place right now with climate and sport and life and existence as we've known it. Yeah, it's coming at us from every direction. And I think, you know, when you say skiing and running, water sports, even things like that, I think it's easy to make the connection between sport and climate, right? Like you need certain conditions and environments to be able to do these sports. But 
you think about athletes who compete indoors or train indoors or even like weekend warriors who take cycling classes on Saturdays, do you feel that they're also inherently connected to the climate or is it just people who participate in sport outdoors that need to care? Well, if you're not an outdoor athlete and you're training inside and you're going to a gym or a spin studio or something like that, it takes resources to keep the climate at a decent level for the exercise you're pursuing. So, you know, you're using resources, you're using energy. You know, I remember talking about the possibility of generating power for spin studios or gyms by having people pedal and collecting that energy that they expend while working out. And I think if we could capture that and do something along those lines, it would be really cool. In just the same way, I think that Maine has 3,000 miles of coastline and we're making great advances in solar energy and thermal energy and wind energy, but we haven't really utilized the tide. And I watch the tide come and go every day from our house and there's huge amounts of energy in that transaction of sea levels. And so... You know, there's a lot out there, but I think we're all responsible. And as an outdoor athlete, I'm really concerned about um, sun exposure. Skin cancer is an occupational hazard for me. And I think we need to plan accordingly as far as sunscreen and hats, you know, to shield us from the disappearing ozone layer. Do you think that these changes and the, the ways that you've had to shift and evolve to sort of adapt to them over the years. Do you feel that it's affecting your joy for running at all? I wouldn't say it's affecting my joy. It's increasing my concern. I rarely leave our home to train. I know a lot of athletes go to altitude to train, and then they come down and go to their competition or their race And then they may go home for a respite and then they'll go off again to altitude to train for the next event. And I've never been one to do that because we have distinct climates and changing seasons here in Maine, or at least we did. But the differences between those seasons are becoming less and less obvious. I mean, it's almost 55 degrees here in Maine and the average temperature is probably 35 Last week, we almost hit 70, and then we had sub-zero weather. It's just nuts. Yeah, I mean, when it's winter and you're running in shorts, it feels nice in the moment for sure, but it comes at such a high cost. And we know that, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, we've had the 10 warmest years on record since 2005. And ocean temperatures as well. I'm, I'm on the board of an environmental organization here in Maine, and we collect a lot of the results on ocean temperatures and salinity and everything else for NOAA. And it's definitely changing. I mean, I remember on our honeymoon, we went to New Zealand and we climbed on the Franz Josef Glacier and that's gone. I mean, it's not here anymore. I was reading a little bit about heat acclimatization and it just seems like it's been more and more important over the recent years. But I think as we see these shifts in temperatures, we'll see more of that. You know, it's not unusual anymore even for event start times to shift to either pre-dawn or post-dusk to avoid putting athletes into this type of excessive heat. And even in the past couple of years, 2019, several athletes collapsed while competing in the marathon at the World Championships in Doha. The IOC shifted the 2020 Olympic marathon from Tokyo to Sapporo because of the heat. There's a lot of people and organizations pushing for midnight marathons, which kind of blows my mind. Have you had to adjust any of your training and your workouts because of temperature, other climate-related concerns? Uh, Yes, for sure. Not every day, but there are periods when the ozone levels are unhealthy and you're warned or it's suggested that you don't go out and exercise, especially if you have some sort of a health ailment or something like that. I usually disregard that, but I can come in from a run and feel the effects of the poor air quality. It stays with you for a while. Yeah. I run almost every day, so I may cut back on the intensity of that workout on that particular day when the ozone levels are high, but I'm out there most days, and I think that's what helps to develop an athlete. And mm-hmm. I you know, have been healthy through the pandemic, and I think part of it is because I'm out there breathing relatively clean air. And I've recently taken to cold water swimming because it's been 
shown to improve one's immune system. So anything I can do to boost my immune system, I'm willing to try. Mm-hmm. And the water is plenty cold here. Yeah, how cold are we talking? <laughs> I didn't go in today, but it was 39 degrees, Ooh. which is up a degree. But it really wakes you up, it zings you. Are you in a wetsuit? Are you just... No, just... Oh, my gosh. I usually go in right after I've finished the run. Joan, I'm getting the chills just thinking about <laughs> I've gone every day to once a week to once a month or a couple times a month. And is that unusual for this time of year? You mentioned maybe snowing a little earlier, experiencing more warmer days and temperatures of the water. Are you noticing more extreme weather overall in Maine than you have in the past? Oh, for sure. As a matter of fact, we used to be able to skate out to mooring balls. We have pictures of our children sitting on mooring balls, and we haven't seen a winter like that for years. And where we live on Casco Bay, it's a part of the Gulf of Maine, which is the fastest warming body of global water. So that's why I see all these tangible changes. And it's affected the lobster industry and the fishing industry and the shrimping industry and just about every industry that's related to the marine environment. Well, and I know we've been spending a lot of time talking about running because you are synonymous with running at this point. But as we talk more about sport, heat doesn't just affect the running events. I have data around global football. It shows that the average player experiences 20% more extremely hot days compared to 1990. We have data on uh, temperatures during tennis's top competitions, which shows that daily maximums are trending warmer over time. So if you look at Melbourne, Australia, for example, the host city for the Australian Open, Average daily highs during tournament season are expected to reach an average of 105.9 degrees by 2030 compared to 99 degrees Fahrenheit by 1990. And then if you take the flip side of that, the quality snowboarding days worldwide has declined by 7%. Does it ever get easy to hear this stuff? How does it make you feel? No, it gets more and more concerning. And I mean, sort of on the opposite end, They had to move this winter a lot of the ski races, both Nordic and Alpine, to more northern venues because northern Maine, which is right on the Canadian border, seems to retain its snow and colder temperatures longer than we do down here in southern coastal Maine. There's a Nordic ski center very close to where we live, and it's been closed more than it's been open this winter because they can't keep the snow. And so the temperatures are rising, and then we have these severe weather events where it just pours rain when it should be dumping snow, or it gets really, really warm, and they lose snow that way, or it's a combination. And I founded the TD Beach to Beacon 10K in my hometown of Cape Elizabeth because I asked myself if I was fortunate enough to win the first women's Olympic marathon would I be able to give back to a sport and a community that had given so much to me? And we've had days wondering if we should move the start time up just because it was going to get so hot so quickly. So I don't know when we're looking at the global scene of athletics, it may be that most venues become more cemented in northern climes just so the temperature is not as apt to go so high that it makes it unhealthy or dangerous to compete. Yeah. So talking about the reasons that event organizers need to consider adjusting races, it's not just that running in the heat is uncomfortable. It can be legitimately unhealthy. And and there was a study that's coming out, I believe, in May, published recently online, and it looked at the health impacts of the rise in temperature, specifically on endurance athletes. It noted that long-distance runners and cyclists are more at risk of heat-related illnesses, illnesses from wildfire pollution, and vector-borne illnesses, so things like Lyme disease, primarily because of the amount of time endurance athletes spend outside training and competing. Have you personally experienced any health changes that you feel you can associate with spending tons and tons and tons of time working out in the heat or if there's been any air pollution. I know you mentioned, you know, you kind of tend to get out there even if the air quality is not great. I do the same thing. Definitely it affects my breathing and my throat if I'm out working out hard during a hot day or a day when the ozone levels are high. And the other thing is it takes longer to recover when you're dealing in a warmer hotter climate. You don't recover as quickly from races when it's hot. And it just takes more out of you. 
especially if there's an ambient air quality that's poor that matches the heat, then it becomes even more challenging. Yeah. I remember I was training for, I think it was my first marathon, and I was visiting my parents. They live on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and I had to run 13 miles, and it was miserably hot, and the humidity was 100%. And my dad was so (laughs) concerned for me to go out and run 13 miles, and he rode his bike next to me the entire time just to make sure that I was okay. And I felt so destroyed after that. I was like, I felt like I needed to sleep for days. Yeah, and I think heat and climate affect the athlete in much the same way that illness does. I mean, the climate is ill, right? And when we're ill, we think we can push our way or gut our way through a workout that's scheduled for a particular day. But what normally happens if you don't give yourself the opportunity to push a hard workout back to another day Again, it takes you longer to recover from that effort when you're ill than when you're healthy. Mm -hmm. So humankind and the environment aren't all that dissimilar that way. Yeah, this can be a really tough conversation, and I think it can feel really scary to a lot of people. So it helps to focus on the action that we can all take to create a future for our planet that supports sport and our holistic health. And you, Joan, you're a big part of making that future happen. You've been involved with Nike Grind and our Move to Zero campaign. So what are these projects meant to you as an athlete? Well, like running, I'm passionate about the environment in which we live. I mean, who would we be without the environment that we cherish and we depend upon to provide a venue for us to go out and exercise freely and without concern? And, you know, when I first started running, there really wasn't concern for the environment. And as I've aged in the sport, there's more and more concern. Move to Zero and and Nike Grind are great starts, and we need to make sure we're capturing all the enhancements that we're working on to improve athletes' performance so that the carbon that is emitted is captured and repurposed and put back into even better performance product. Without a healthy environment, no political, economic, educational, whatever reforms will matter because we won't have an environment to support those reforms. Right. But we need to make environmental reforms post-haste. And you're doing some of that, you know, you're working with legislators and the government in Maine as well, right? Can you talk about some of the work you're doing there? Well, most of that work is done through my work with Friends of Casco Bay, but I've also been involved with other organizations like Winter Kids, getting kids outside in the winter to enjoy everything that Maine has to offer in the winter. And the founding of the Beach to Beacon was one of the founding ideals was to give back to the children of Maine because along with the environment, the next generation is really one of our most valuable resources. I mean, they're going to be the leaders of tomorrow and we're going to have to lean on them big time to make the advances and the reforms that need to be made. Well, and the Beach to Beacon race achieved the Evergreen certification from the Oregon-based Council for Responsible Sport, right? So tell me what that means, because that's a that's a BFD. <laughs> and that's very important to us. You know, Maine is known as vacation land, and we're known to have this pristine environment, and there's a little bit of artistic license there. It is a beautiful environment, but it's not a totally healthy environment because of air qualities. People don't realize that the Gulf of Maine and the way the eastern seaboard shapes, it's a catch basin for all the bad air that comes up the eastern seaboard. And so I said to the board that we need to make this event as green as we can, and our sponsors have really embraced that. We all need to do the right thing. And I think at the bottom of this is education. And if people understand the environmental consequences of their endeavors or their lifestyles, they're willing to make changes. Do you have any other advice for athletes who want to make a genuine difference in this fight, but they don't know where to start or they don't know what will actually help? I think, again, educating the athletes to see what their impact in their own homes, in their own communities is making on the global 
or national, what that imprint is doing. I can remember way back when, right after I graduated from college, I went over to the track series in New Zealand and ran a few of the races and wound up running a marathon the night before I left. But what I remember the most about New Zealand was not my track efforts and my marathon effort over there, but it was the fact that back then, cars in New Zealand had different colored stickers on their windshields. And if you had a blue sticker, you couldn't have your car on the road on a Monday if it was red, Tuesday if it was yellow, Wednesday, and so forth. Just little adaptations like that can make a difference. So a lot of athletes cluster together in communities. So if they're going to, you know, a gym or to a track or wherever they're going, I think that carpooling is something that can be done pretty simply and easily. That's just one small thing, but all these small things add up. Well, thank you for being part of this conversation and hopefully what will be a bright and healthy future for our planet and for all of us. It's my pleasure and thanks for asking me. And, you know, I'm going back to the old adage that has kept me going. There is no finish line. There's a lot more we can do. There's a lot we have done. And we need to stay on the road and keep our focus. If you've ever climbed to the top of a mountain, dropped in on a perfect wave, crossed through the forest on Nordic skis, or simply ran across an open field on a gorgeous day, then you've seen for yourself what's on the line. The great outdoors is our greatest sports arena. But what Sanjan and Joan have made really, really clear today is that if we don't start exerting more effort as individuals and as an athletic community to get the planet in better shape, then we'll all suffer the consequences. Sanjan is right. Athletes by their very nature are driven to shake up the status quo. They shine in the face of adversity. And with the tools and inspiration that he and Joan shared today, we can do more to preserve and protect the planet for ourselves, for the people we care about, and for the beautiful places that we love. On the next episode, we're commemorating Nike's 50th anniversary by going back into the trained archive. We'll resurface past conversations with athletes, experts, and trainers to bring you some of our favorite body and mind moments over the past few years, and to highlight again how we can all optimize ourselves through the five facets of fitness. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to, and it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to see covered, email me at trained at nike.com, and I'll see what I can do. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide isn't a substitute for any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions.